David, I love that candle you're burning. You seem to always have a great candle burning. I am very aware of how room smells. When you've spent over a decade with a 75 pound Labrador retriever and two teenage boys, you start to worry that your house smells like the inside of a gym bag. I would imagine so. You know what I wish we'd had for the last decade? What? That Puro Air Purifier we now own and use all the time. I love my Puro Air too. Did you know that indoor air quality can be up to 100 times dirtier than outdoor air? Yes, I lived with two teenage boys. I can 100% testify <laughs> to that. In 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, dander, and gases from the room. Gases from a preteen boy? <laughs> I'm dreading when my nephews start making those gases. Just you wait. Thankfully, Puro Air uses a stronger type of filter called HEPA-14 that filters pollutants at a microscopic level and is backed by scientists from Harvard and MIT. You wouldn't drink unfiltered tap water, so why would you breathe unfiltered air? Thanks to my Puro Air Purifier, I feel like I can breathe again. Check it out at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time, getpuroair.com. Check it out now. Hey friends, welcome to the Raising Boys and Girls podcast. I'm Sissy Goff. And I'm David Thomas. And I'm Melissa Trevathan. And we're so glad you joined us for this conversation. Let's dive in. Dr. Lisa Damore is the author of three New York Times bestsellers, which have been translated into 23 languages. She co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, works in collaboration with UNICEF, and is a regular contributor to the New York Times and CBS News. She maintains a private practice and also speaks to schools, professional organizations, and corporate groups around the world on the topics of child and adolescent development, family mental health, and adult well-being. Dr. Damore graduated with honors from Yale University and worked for the Yale Child Study Center before earning her doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Michigan. She and her husband are the proud parents of two daughters. You can find her work at drlisademore.com. We believe this conversation will be one you want to revisit over and over. Dr. Damore, I mean, you have been at the top of our list for so long to get to have a conversation with. We're just so honored to get to have time with you. I yes, really are. appreciate it. I, and I'm honored by the invitation and so excited to just think with you about kids and what they need. Uh, well, you are really one of our favorite voices in this world. And we were laughing as we were working on questions because really we just wanted to say, would you just talk? Would you just talk about whatever <laughs> feels important to you right now and go on and on? And we would be thrilled for anything that you would want to say. Well, that's kind. That's very kind. Well, hopefully our questions will kind of help that happen. But if there's anything that comes to you that you want to say in the midst of the questions, you just go for it because okay. really there's so much goodness. We follow everything you're doing in every space and are just grateful for all your words. But will you start off for anybody who's living under a rock and isn't familiar with you and your work? Will you just talk about yourself and, and what you're doing these days? Sure. Thank you. Um, and thank you for the good work you do. I, you know, I just there's so much strain around raising kids. And I just, I'm so grateful to 
all the good people who are working to make it easier for families and for the beautiful work you do. Thank you. Um, okay, so I'm a psychologist. I'm a clinical psychologist. I got my PhD actually 27 years ago, um, which feels impossible to me, but it's been that long. <laughs> and I was thinking about it actually this morning. I was like, you know, and of course I was taking care of people while I was in training. I was like, wow, I've been doing this for 30 years. Like I've been caring for teenagers and their families for 30 years. Um, I started with a very traditional academic career. I taught college. I wrote college textbooks. I, you know, wrote books that people don't read. <laughs> I did all that. <laughs> and then, um, then I was practicing and I still practice a little bit. And then what happened was two things happened simultaneously. One is I was looking in Motherload, which was an old blog from the New York Times. And there was an article there that I was like, oh, I have a thought. I'll just submit a piece to Motherload. So I did. And then I forgot about it. And then simultaneously while I was practicing, I kept feeling like, man, the book I want about teenage girls does not exist. The mm -hmm. book that just lays out the map of what, you know, what to expect when you're expecting a teenager. I can't find it. Well, I know how to write academic books. I bet I can try to write another kind of book. So I drafted Untangled and then um, cutting through a whole bunch of steps, the New York Times started to publish me monthly and Untangled was published in 2016 followed by under pressure and then followed by the emotional lives of teenagers. And so this was not the career I was planning on. I was really, I thought I'll just teach my college classes. I'll take care of some patients. Um, but this is the career I've got. And mm. um, I sort of feel like, you know what? I became a psychologist to be useful. And if I can be useful at scale, then that is what I will try to do. So I now have a podcast called Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting, where every week my co-host Rena Ninen and I tackle a question from parents. Um, and I do a lot of stuff on social media and I work for UNICEF and other mm. stuff. But those are the highlights right now. Mm. Well, mission accomplished. <laughs> what you set out to do, you are doing in extraordinary ways. And, yes. and would love to even ask you, what have you seen change with parents and families over the course of your work? This is a really key question. Um, everything is harder. Everything is harder. And I think there's two ways that we can break that down. One is it is harder to raise teenagers right now, and it is harder to be a teenager right now. Teenagers themselves are dealing with so much input, much of it coming through technology. Teenagers in many communities are dealing with demands for so much higher output um, you know, across the board, sociodemographically, we see expectations of what kids are going to achieve in high school are way higher than whatever we were doing in high school, yes. for sure. Yes. So the teens themselves are feeling more stress. And then, of course, as parents and caregivers, we're along for that ride. And, and so when our kids are more stressed, we are more stressed. Then, as sort of a bigger picture piece, there's... I think a lot of confusion about what is supposed to be happening in terms of mood and development. And what I mean is, I think that people are given the idea that if, and I would say from the media broadly, get this idea, that if they just do all the right things, they and their kids can be happy and calm and relaxed most of the time. Okay, that's, that was never available to us. It doesn't need to be. <laughs> I also think that we've dropped or lost a lot of like, good basic information about development in kids. Mm -hmm. And I will just headline it by saying, 
Development is a really bumpy road. It has always (laughs) been a bumpy road. There is no smooth road of development. And I think what happened is the pandemic put us in a ditch for a year and a half. And I think a lot of people are like, I want to be back on that smooth road. It'll be better when we're back on that smooth road. And I'm like, no, no, no. It was never a smooth road. We're back on a bumpy road with very worn out shocks is sort of how I would say it. So that's a great way to put it. I think it's hard. I think it's hard. And I've I've watched the landscape change. And I've lot yeah. I'll sum it all up by saying I've watched a huge amount more anxiety emerge around negative emotions and the typical and expectable challenges of adolescent development. That's what I would say is the big issue. Agreed. You know, we are tracking with you. We have both been doing this work about 30 years and and feel the exact same. And I think it's part of why every time you talk, I feel like I'm in the background jumping up and down. And I know David is too, because yes, yes, I just, I love the perspective that you have of, it has always been a bumpy road. And and the expectations are, I think, doing more damage for parents and kids. Yes. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We could just say that after everything you say. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So if you, this is really big picture question, but if you had to say what you believe are the top two or three things right now that kids need from parents, what would your answer to that question be? Um, number one, take really good care of yourself. I really, I really, you know, I, I've always wanted to be a psychologist. The first semester of college, I signed up for my developmental psychology class. Like I knew this was what I was going to do. And I remember the first words out of the professor's mouth. I remember he came to the front of the stage and he said, listen, it's really hard for kids to outfunction their parents. And I was like, I mean, clearly this was the fall of 1988. Clearly this has stuck with me. So part of how we take care of our kids is actually taking really good care of ourselves and our own mental health and our own coping and our own restoration. And I worry that families see this as somehow selfish or um, indulgent. And no, it's part of how you take care of your kid. So number one, take really good care of yourself. Um, Both because it'll help you take care of your kid and because you're modeling, right? You're modeling what quality coping looks like. You're modeling what um, routinized restoration, having time where we recover and come back to things looks like. Okay. Number two, when your kid comes rolling at you with a whole lot of big and heavy and sometimes scary emotions, your job, and this is really easy to say, very hard to do, is to try to be a steady presence. That's like that's how I would sum it up. This is easier to do if you have been taking good care of yourself. And then, because teenagers are my world, what I would say to parents, and this this gets back to what we're saying about like what is natural to adolescents, though hard. When you have a teenager, or shortly before your kid becomes a teenager, which is around ten or eleven, which you know people think is they've got more time, they don't have more time. It's around ten <laughs> or eleven. Um, make sure that you have sources of self esteem and worth that do not hinge on how your kid is treating you or do not hinge on your joyful relationship with your teenager. (laughs) (laughs) It's your teenager's job to push you away, to be a little salty, to want to be with other people more than they want to be with you, to point out your flaws, right? I mean, this is all part of adolescence. If you are hanging on how your kid treats you or the fun you're having together for feeling good in your life, this is not going to go well. Have a job, have hobbies, have people who love you, 
um, your kid's going to do what they got to do. Mm. It's so good. Well, and to that, Dr. Damore, we have five therapy dogs we use in our practice, and we are commonly recommending to families, get a dog. Then someone will be excited <laughs> to see you all the time. <laughs> Necessary <laughs> and needed in that stretch of development, as you are wisely reminding us. Yes, yes. someone's going to be happy to see you walking yes. through the door. It might there not be your teenager. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> You made mention of your books, which we love and recommend so often. So thinking about Untangled, thinking about Under Pressure in the Emotional Lives of Teenagers, will you talk a little bit about what you had in mind with each of those books sure. and what you hoped parents would take away? Sure. Okay. So starting with Untangled. So I, the time I was writing it, I had two things happening. I was practicing a lot, taking care of a lot of families with teenagers. I also... um I'm affiliated with Case Western Reserve University's clinical psych department. And I was supervising graduate students in clinical psychology. So you know this, like the bitter irony of training is that the least trained clinicians are working with the most chaotic families because they are working with families who can afford a very low fee arrangement, yeah. which is what you should be paying, if anything, to be cared for by a brand new clinician. And so I was caring for my graduate students and trying to teach them. And they have these really, really complex cases. And also wishing that the book out was out there that could help families understand teenagers in general. It's centered on girls, but it really applies to kids of all genders, almost all of it. And so I started with my graduate students to develop basically a checklist of the jobs of a teenager. And um, those became the chapters in Untangled. And so um, the chapters are parting with childhood, joining a new pack, harnessing emotions, contending with adult authority, planning for the future, entering the romantic world, and caring for oneself. So those are the jobs. And um, when I was working on the book, my editor kept saying, now, are these in order or are they happening all at once? And I kept saying, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yes. this is the rough trajectory, but like... You know, I mean, there's still 18-year-olds who are doing parting with childhood stuff. You know, I mean, there's still, you know, and which is great and wonderful. And so um, what I've heard people say Untangled is, is basically what to expect when you're expecting a teenager. It's just the map of how this unfolds. And what I hope adults can take from Untangled is that adolescence is not something your kid is doing to you. Adolescence is this complex, multi-layered set of achievements, a healthy adolescent, that your kid has to make, transitions they have to make. You get pulled in in ways you don't see coming. You get pushed out in ways you don't see coming. But it's not about you. It's about the job they have to do, and you are involved in that job. And what I did, it's interesting and Untangled, and I've come back to this again and again, in laying out the typical and expectable, you know, sort of, um, here's what it looks like when a kid's parting with childhood. I also, at the end of each chapter, have a when to worry section. Mm. And and that, for me, um, I remember when I struck upon that as solution while writing, how it kind of clarified a lot of things. And I've continued to find that a really helpful way, especially for families with teenagers, because so much of raising a teenager is spicy and challenging. Like, you're like, when is this typical and when is this over the line? So I would say probably the other thing that I'm really um, glad found its way into Untangled is this, like, here's the normal challenges. Here's the things that once you're seeing these, it's actually probably time to be worried. Um, 
Okay, so then there's under pressure. And this gets to your question about like what's changed. So under pressure came out in 2019. And what has changed, and I'm sure you've seen this also, people didn't used to talk about anxiety so much. Kids did not used to talk about anxiety so much. And the subtitle for under pressure is um, confronting the epidemic of stress and anxiety in girls. And so in the time I've practiced and you've practiced, right, stress and anxiety have become very central topics and wrongly are almost always talked about as if they are always pathological, which they're not. Stress is part of life. Anxiety is a healthy and protective mechanism. And so that book's aim was to really go um, sort of domain, domain, domain through girls' lives, right? Girls at home, girls among their peers, girls with boys, girls at school, girls in the culture. Look at stress and anxiety in those domains, where it comes from. And also, again, back to the window worry, help offer clarity around what is typical and expectable stress and anxiety in these conditions that is actually growth-giving or protective, and when are we over the line and what do we do when we're over the line? So that's under pressure. This is very indulgent for me to like walk through what my book-length work has been about. I don't usually do this. So jump in if I'm like missing something. or I want to keep doing a happy dance as you're talking. And okay. I, the reason we wanted you to do that is because we feel like it's, we want everybody who's listening to buy all three of your books. Okay, yes. that's cool. Maybe the ones <laughs> that we don't know about too, but the, even the textbooks. But, um, but I think that's, it's so helpful for you to explain because it okay. is so indicative of where things are different yeah. and, and what is going on with kids. Sissy, I have been meaning to tell you that your teeth look great. David, that's so kind. Someone else said that to me lately. Well, what is your secret? Yes. Flossing. Mm, I'm kind of good at flossing, but it's not that. You stop drinking coffee. No, you know better than that. Well, thank goodness it's not that because I can't stop that. Not even for great teeth. <laughs> it's Bite Toothpaste. They are one of our new sponsors. Yes, they are. Did you know you swallow 5 to 7% of toothpaste every single time you brush your teeth? That's an entire blob of toothpaste every seven days. Well, aren't you full of great teeth and fascinating trivia? <laughs> Well, I am, but hold on, I'm not done. Most commercial toothpastes are filled with harsh chemicals, artificial flavors, and preservatives, not stuff you'd want to be putting in your mouth, let alone eating. That's why Bite makes dry toothpaste tablets made with clean ingredients that are sulfate-free, palm oil-free, and glycerin-free. Bite toothpaste bits are so convenient, you just pop a bit in your mouth, chew it up, and start brushing. It will turn to paste just like you're used to, but no plastic tube or messy paste. That plastic tube gets gross. David, you no longer need to worry about that. They come in refillable glass jars and they send refills in compostable pouches. So they're better for our bodies and our earth. No more plastic toothpaste tube. Bite makes plastic-free alternatives for everything on your bathroom sink, from toothpaste, mouthwash, toothbrushes, and deodorant, so you can cut out the harsh chemicals and plastic waste without compromise. Bite is offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybite.com slash RBG or use code RBG at checkout to claim this deal. That's T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash RBG.
Sissy, I loved seeing your pictures from the weekend at the lake house with your college friends. We had the best time. I could tell. We laughed harder than I have laughed in a long time. Good for you. That photo of us out on the porch is thanks to the great folks at Home Threads. We love our new porch furniture. It's so comfortable, functional, and looks incredible. We have loved our Home Thread purchases as well. I feel like I'm staying in a swanky hotel every time I use our new towels. Connie bought them for when we have guests, and I proceeded to use them for myself. So we had to buy more. <laughs> Parents, are you ready to transform your home into a haven for your growing family? Look no further than Home Threads your destination for stylish and functional furniture that's perfect for raising boys and girls. At HomeThreads.com, discover a curated collection of furniture designed with your family in mind. From durable bunk beds to versatile storage solutions, our pieces are as resilient as your little adventures and always at the best value. I need a lot of durable furniture when it comes to my little nephews. Yes, you do. Create a space where memories are made and imaginations run wild. Go to homethreads.com slash RBG and get 15% off your first order. Home Threads, shop today and love where you live. Sissy, I have a question for you. Queso or guac? Well, I'm used to us asking that question, but not answering it. But I think I would choose queso. How would you feel about queso being central to your dinner tonight? Oh, I love that plan. Thanks to one of our sponsors, that can be your reality. Factor is helping me make red pepper queso chicken tonight. That sounds amazing. I love Factor. I just made a green chili pork and pico de gallo bowl. Did it bowl you over? <laughs> it did. <laughs> With Factor, you'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Snacks, smoothies, and more. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Sign up and save. We have done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com slash RBG50 and use code RBG50 to get 50% off. That's code RBG50 at factormeals.com slash RBG50 to get 50% off. So then the pandemic struck. And you know this. I mean, we'd never seen anything like it, any of us. And those of us in the clinical capacity had never seen anything like it. And then, of course, it hit teenagers in a very particular way. 
you know, they have two jobs. They're supposed to become increasingly independent and spend as much time with their friends as possible. And they could do neither of those jobs, right? So it was really bad. So I went to work, you went to work as hard as we could to try to be as helpful as we could through that. That was actually the origins of the Ask Lisa podcast. I, I had been writing, I was writing monthly for the Times and I called my colleague, Rena. I'm like, this is not cutting it. Like families need more support than a monthly article that many families don't even subscribe to. Like what else can we do? And so the pandemic pushed my thinking, pushed my growth as a clinician, you know, in that way when stress makes you grow, right? And and we're doing things that are at the edge of our capacity or novel. And so as things wound down, a new landscape presented itself and one that I was concerned about. And so my book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, which came out in February 2023 and the paperback February 2024, um, aims to do two things. One, to get clarity on what mental health really is because of this broad misunderstanding that emerged. And what I mean by that is all around us, I'm watching mental health be defined as feeling good or calm or relaxed or happy, which it is not. So one thing that book aimed to do was to say, look, mental health is about having the right feelings at the right time, even if they are negative feelings. And what it's really about is managing those feelings well. And so then the second aim of the book was to unpack all of the clinical and research content on emotion regulation, right? This thing we've done forever as clinicians, like it's all about regulation. You cannot prevent distress. You cannot banish distress, right? I mean, it will show up. It's about regulation. So the book has really two aims. One, to level set. Having teenagers is hard and they will have negative feelings and it's a done deal and it's not all bad. And also to say, when your kid does have a negative feeling, your goal is to help them express that emotion if it brings relief, tame that emotion if it brings relief, work across those two categories, and watch out for destructive coping. So that's what the book really aims to do. Um, you know, as clinicians, there's nothing in that book that I'm saying that is revolutionary. There is nothing that I am saying that is really in any way novel. I feel like what I'm doing is packaging what we know and have known about teenagers and their care for decades. It's just um, we've lost the thread of it in the yes. current discourse. Mm. Yes. So well said. And can, <laughs> yes. I, can I just comment too? I was so struck by, as you were sharing that idea and talking around the evolution of the podcast, that you described living yourself some of the very things you were hoping to communicate. It was like out of the stress of the pandemic yes. and realizing mm -hmm. this monthly column isn't offering as much as I want to, that created opportunity for growth and the evolution yeah. of the podcast. And I love yeah. that you communicated that for yourself, the very thing you're wanting for the families in your care. So thank you for well, sharing that you. story. Thank you. Mm. I also, I have two kids. I have a daughter who's a sophomore in college now, and I have a daughter who's 13. So they were respectively third and 10th graders when the pandemic hit. And so I was also watching what this meant for them under what we have, which are basically ideal conditions. Like we have ideal mm. conditions. And I was like, holy moly, if this is what mm. it feels like in our house, when we have space and resources, my husband's a teacher. He was able to cover all sorts of things for them. It really... um 
it was a really powerful time. Mm, yes, yes. Well, so you did a beautiful job of introducing your work with girls. I don't think I said this at the beginning. Where I first heard about you, you and I have have journeyed kind of similarly in our work with girls. I mean, you in a very different space. But I I wrote a book about anxiety in girls right about the time that Untangled came out, I think was when I was working on it. And so I did a small group, parent group, small parent group based on the new content that I was working on. And I mean, every single conversation, at least two moms would say, well, and Untangled. And so it became a book study for you <laughs> rather than any of the content, which is when I first discovered the work that you're doing. And yes, I just... I'm so grateful for you helping us pick back up the threads that you're talking about with girls, with adolescents, in all the I places. Hope. I yes. hope. I mean, you it really, um, you know, you sort of feel like you got to do what you can with what you got where you are, right? right. And then that's what I, right. I hope to do. Yes, yes. Well, your voice is so important and so trusted mm -hmm. in it. And, and I'm going to switch to girls for just a second, <laughs> and then we'll come back to teenagers. So thinking about I mean, I love the titles and the subtitles, which I'm going to say them again because I love the subtitles of both books. So Untangled is Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood, which are the ones you talked about. And Under Pressure is Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. So both I'm recommending constantly in my office. And where would you say you do see girls particularly struggling today? And what can we do to help? So... Girls are crushing it. Like that's the good and the bad here. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, these adolescent girls, by junior year, you feel like you could all run corporations. Right? They are so yes. capable. They are so amazing. They have done everything we've ever asked of them and more. Right. I mean, they are just machines. They are machines. And um, this is, is not always working in their favor. Um, they are achieving more than we've ever seen. The whole world has become available to them in ways that, you know, generations past we wished for them, but nothing's come off their plate. So I think that part of where I see girls struggle is that they are, I mean, many of them are starting small businesses in high school or working for, you know, governmental organizations. Yes. I mean, like incredible stuff. And they are also worried about their appearance. And they are also putting up with, I will say, a very rapidly rising rate of um, misogyny from male peers, which is its own. We, I, we, we should talk about that. Yes. Um, they are putting up with more sexism than I think past generations or recent generations have. Um, and so they're just sort of compressed, right, by all of these demands. And, um, you know, they're athletes and they're inventors and they're scientists and they're also anxious about being pretty because the culture tells them they should be, you know. So I think for girls, it really is a matter of helping them um, taper, focus, feel allowed to turn things down, to be disengaged from things. Um, to not try to be everything to everyone all the time. Yes. Mm. Yes. I remember a girl saying to me one time in counseling, she said, 
just because we can do everything doesn't mean we want to do everything. And it's just too much, which is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. I'd love to ask. I want to focus in on one of your subtitles, too. I love the subtitle to the newest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable and Compassionate Adolescents. And I'd love to if you let me lean into the connected part, because I know in your work and our work, we so often hear from parents of I want to feel more connected to them and walking that tightrope of supporting their independence and autonomy, but wanting to still have time with kids who'd prefer to be in their rooms often. And so what thoughts would you share with parents in that space who want to feel more connected? Um, first of all, it's not personal, right? I think that so often that sneaks in this sense of why won't my kid do this? Or I invested so much time when you were younger in the hopes that we wouldn't get to this place and now we're here and I'm hurt, right? I think that that mm. is often unspoken and at work in those interactions. What I will say is, and you know this too, teenagers like adults and they actually like to be around adults. Teenagers are not allergic to us entirely. Well, the issue is that the terms of engagement have changed. Mm. And I think a lot of times adults get stuck on what they envision as being connected. And usually it goes something like this, right? Like my kid comes in the door. I say, how was school? They tell me things. I make great suggestions. They welcome those suggestions. We've had a wonderful conversation, <laughs> right? I mean, when I say it like that, it's like funny, right? right. But I think that that is sort of the fantasy, right? It doesn't go that way. Your kid comes in, they drop their bags, they don't want to talk, you make a suggestion, now they're super annoyed, right? And then you're like, ah, why isn't this working? What I hear from teenagers is their idea of connecting is if I'm in the TV room watching a dumb show and you'll just come sit with me quietly, that's fantastic. And keep your mouth shut. Like, do not, do not comment on the show. If we're driving somewhere and you'll let me, we call it in my house, DJ, you'll let me DJ. Like you'll let me decide what the music is and you'll be curious, like you'll, you'll be into it. Like you'll be interested in what I'm, you know, listening to. That's connecting. If when at 10 o'clock at night, even though you tried to talk to me at dinner, I show up in your room and I'm like, uh, guess what happened at school today? You're there for it, even though it's inconvenient. Um, and it's 10 o'clock at night because then I control the situation. I can leave when I want to, you know, those are the terms of engagement. I think the job of a parent of a teenager is to switch from your idea of what connection looks like to your kid's idea of what connection looks like. And then you can have it, then you can have it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a pretty significant transition. Yes. I wrote a piece ages ago um, for the Times called What Do Teenagers Want? Potted Plant Parents, right? They want us around, they want us available, mm. and they want us quiet, <laughs> like agendaless and quiet, oh, right? Like be there so in case good. I have a need, you know? And I think that yes. that's, but I think that for parents, they don't, that doesn't feel like connection. I'm sitting here reading the newspaper, you're over there doing your homework. That doesn't feel like connection. Whereas for the kid, they're like, oh, good, you're right there in case I need you and I can see you, but you're not trying to advance an agenda. Oh, yes. Great. It makes me think, I mean, on one hand, it makes me think about Anne Lamott. I don't know if you read her, but her talking about that hilarious section she has about adolescence with Sam. And I think how 
developmentally difficult it is that they're in this season where they want a potted plant and we're in this season where we want to be passing on what we're learning and discovering and we think we have so much to teach and share and they want a potted plant. So it just, oh, it's tough. It is tough. Yeah. It is tough. I also, okay, on the stuff we have to share, I sort of take a SWAT team approach, right? Like that there's, there are things we do need to tell our kids. And what cracks me up about teenagers is when they can see us coming with like guidance around a delicate Uh, topic, right? I, I swear all they're thinking is, how do I get out of this? Like, how do I get out of this? Like, what is it going to take to shut this down? Like, I don't even know where you're going and I'm already going to try to shut this down. And so one thing that I have done in my own home that has worked well enough is I'll say, look, we got to talk about porn online. Like we got, we got to have this conversation. Here is the deal. I am setting a timer. I will not go past 90 seconds and you do not have to look at me. (laughs) They're like, okay, go. It's so great. That's so good. I love that. I love that. Yes, thank so, you. You're welcome. So I think we can impart wisdom, but again, we have to work with who we're working with. Yes. Sissy, it's 2024 and we hit the ground running with travel. I was in three states in three days last week. And we're in two cities in Texas in two days this week. And we will eat Tex-Mex around the clock every day in every city, won't we? I guarantee it. As consistent as we are in eating tacos, we have to also be consistent with taking our vitamins. Yes, we do. And with this much travel, I can't find time to get to the store and buy the things I need in life, like vitamins. Guess what? With Haya, you don't have to. I love Hyatt, and I have Hyatt at my house for Henry. They can work for big kids as well. I take them all the time. (laughs) Typical children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise, filled with two teaspoons of sugar, unhealthy chemicals, and other gummy junk growing kids should never eat. That's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin. Haya fills in the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need with a yummy taste they love. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and veggies, then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, folate, and many others to help support immunity, energy, brain function, mood, concentration, teeth, bones, and more. I need all that. Well, Haya is designed for kids of all ages, as David has proven, and sent straight to your door so there is one less thing to worry about. I love that they ship straight to your door. Parents and people who travel like we do have one less thing to worry about. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash RBG. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com slash R-B-G and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Okay, well, I want to hear you talk about something. And you mentioned, which I love your definition of mental health. We know Mm -hmm. that it's a crisis among our youth today. And your your definition is, or a quote that you say is, mental health is not about feeling good. Instead, it's about having the right feelings at the right time and being able to manage those feelings effectively. So 
I want you to tie this in, if this makes sense, to a phenomenon that I certainly have seen in the last five years, and I feel certain that you have too, where it feels like we have seen this rise in anxiety, depression, suicidality, all the concerning things with kids and mental health. And we have seen this rise in the language that expresses that. So kids aren't saying I'm stressed. They don't use the word stress. I have anxiety. They're not saying I'm sad. They're saying I have depression. I mean, all, and it, it feels so hard to help parents even navigate what, what really is happening, what's yeah. going on. And, and it does feel linked to the perspective on mental health with kids and with teenagers. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how you help parents work through that, how you help kids work through it, how we can help? I will. And as part of that, I have to, I'll confess to something I'm not proud of. I, I can find it frustrating and annoying. Like, it's not my favorite. And and I have to manage my own reaction to it. Oh. Um, and just to lay that out, right, I have cared for people who have been capital T traumatized. Yes. I care for people who are capital D depression. I care for, you know, people who suffer from paralyzing OCD that mm. ruins their lives. And so there's a part of me, and I'm not proud of this, but I think it's important to articulate because I think it's part of how we then figure out what to do to be of help. That when I hear those terms used casually, and especially when I know they are not the right terms, there's a part of me that's like, that is not fair to people yes. who, you know, saying like, oh, that's my OCD. I'm like, you want OCD? I will show you OCD, right? Like, so that like, it's, I'm not like, this is not the best part of my personality, but that is, it's at work. And I have to into the choir. We okay. are with you. Okay. Yes. And so it's there. Certainly. So, yes. but then when I get that out of my system, confess it <laughs> on your podcast, then I think, okay, look, they're in a soup of discourse that is unfolding online that they, you know, is in the media is doing it too. It's not their fault that this is their language. They're not trying to self-dramatize like that. This is just, um, the discourse is going on around them and in which they're participating. So I can be like, you know, okay, it, they're not trying to, you know, disrespect other people. They just, they, this is the language that's getting used. Okay. Yes. So then what I have found as a way to address it is to take very seriously that teenagers are fascinated by mental health. No generation that I've ever cared for has talked about it and been as interested in it as this one. They are being fed a great deal of misinformation about mental health. I mean, TikTok, man, like oh. that's its own, right? I mean, that's its own Ugh. place where it's yes. very worrisome. The best thing about teenagers is they want to get it right. They are interested in what is true. They are, they have incredible BS detectors. And so what I have found is to say to them when they say, oh my God, I'm so depressed. I'm like, talk to me about what makes you say that. And then sometimes the kid actually is on track, right? And then you're glad you asked in that way. Other times I will say, okay, here's what I want you to know. What you are struggling with, that's sadness. Here's how we make the distinction between that and depression. And I do, I just say, here's how we recognize depression. Are these things also happening for you? And often they'll be like, no. I'll be like, okay, but now you know if these things do come around, we would definitely call that depression. But here's how we make the distinction between sadness and depression. Sadness is about something. In depression, it's happening for reasons we can't explain. 
In sadness, you'll get a lift in mood when something nice happens. In depression, we don't see that. So actually just going like, I used to teach abnormal psychology, right? Like going right into like, there is a diagnostic universe that is well filled out. We understand these things. You're talking about it. You're interested. Let me teach you what is true here because you care and want to get it right. So that's how I have found a way to stay in connection with a kid who, or a parent who is using those terms loosely. The other thing I think is really valuable is to introduce the idea of healthy anxiety and healthy stress. So when a kid says, I have anxiety, I'll say, great, talk to me. We have to figure out, is it healthy anxiety or is it unhealthy anxiety? And I'll give it to you. It may be unhealthy anxiety, but I'm trying to introduce a concept that is not out there, though it is a thing, of healthy stress and healthy anxiety. And I'm introducing it, hopefully, in a matter-of-fact way that makes it palatable. Mm. I love that because it's so perspective giving, but it's Mm. also not demeaning. It's very honoring and assuming the best, you know, even saying, I love that you're interested in mental health. And this is a great thing about where and who you are. I mean, yeah, I love how that's not how you said it, but I loved how you said it. Yeah, Yeah, they want to get it right. And and so then to say, oh, we know a lot about it. And and it's interesting. Some of the most fascinating interactions I've had have been with groups of teenagers who themselves are struggling with what to do when a peer is throwing those terms around because they're smart. I mean, they're like, I don't think that kid has depression. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that other kid has depression. But I don't. And so they then feel stuck of like, I don't want to be dismissive. I don't want to not be a good friend or validating. And yet I also don't want to reinforce something that may not be accurate. Like I've had kids struggle with that. Yes. So teenagers, like, they're aware that um, TikTok is probably not the main, most valuable source of diagnostic information, but they're not <laughs> sure where to get good information. So we right. can help. Yes. Well, and you commented on on a topic we wanted to explore. We can't talk about teenagers and not discuss social media and technology. So mm. would love to ask first, how do you feel like it's contributed to what we're seeing mm. in terms of youth mental health? Also, what guidelines do you give both teenagers mm-hmm. and parents of teenagers around social media and technology? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm going to pull the lens way back. Um, you know, I the social science on social media I don't know that we're translating it in a way that's as helpful to families as it should be. And what I mean by that is I feel like there's kind of a couple camps that can emerge. One that's like, social media is destroying your child, which I don't think that's very helpful to families. And then there's another camp that's like, eh, we don't know. We can't say. And I'm like, well, that's not really helpful either because Mm. people got a parent right now. So I find myself trying to like cut this maybe a middle path. I'm probably giving myself more credit than I deserve here, but like trying to find something that's in between that could be immediately useful for immediate families right this minute who have to deal with these questions. So, because I feel torn. Like I actually don't want to get ahead of the data. And I don't think we should say that there's this clear causal connection when we cannot prove it. But I also know social media is a real factor and we need to take it seriously and it can be very harmful. Like I think those both can be true simultaneously. So the things I worry about when I worry about social media, number one, I worry about the algorithm and I worry about the impact of norms on teenagers. So teenagers, more than kids, more than adults, are vulnerable to shifts in norms. 
If they think everybody's doing something, they're more likely to do it. Whereas kids are like, whatever, adults can be more like, whatever, teens can be more malleable in the face of norms. Combine that with algorithmic social media that is designed to flood your feed with one thing, and you can have a really dangerous outcome. We saw this in the pandemic where kids were bored and wanted to make good use of the time. So they started searching for fitness or weight loss. And then suddenly their feed is flooded with images of ultra fit, images of ultra thin. And if you're looking at thousands of those a day, it will change your understanding of what bodies are supposed to look like and what your body is supposed to look like. So it's those two things together that make me anxious. So I think we want to be really mindful of like, what's in a kid's feed? And there's really toxic stuff that can absolutely flood a kid's feed. So there's body image stuff. There's hate content of all varieties. Um, all of it despicable. Um, those are the two big categories I worry about the most is kids. And the appearance stuff is not just girls. Boys are actually spending a lot of time looking at appearance stuff. Boys are spending a lot of time in the gym these days. Um, so that makes me anxious. So if you're going to worry about something on social media, I would worry about that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I worry about is as much as truly it is murky, the link between social media and mental health, what is not murky is the link between sleep and mental health. And we have very clear data showing that worsening sleep and worsening mental health concerns, I mean, the correlations like as close to one as you could ever like expect to see in a scientific exploration I worry that digital technology undermines kids' sleep, and then you get the downstream effects of mental health concerns. So, okay, so then, David, to your question about, like, what are my guidelines? Okay, so number one, in my ideal world, tech doesn't go in kids' bedrooms, like, ever. Um, ideally, not during the day, but for some kids, that's where they get good work done, and I understand that. But when they are supposed to be sleeping, there is I, there's zero reason why the tech needs to be in their bedroom. Um, this is hard to walk back, easier to set up. Um, and what I will tell you about setting things up, when a kid is asking for a phone, they will agree to anything, anything. <laughs> and this is your moment <laughs> to be like, yes. we are open to the idea of a phone. This thing never crosses your threshold of your bedroom. They'll be like, you got it, you got it, I'm on. And right. So that piece is actually surprisingly easy. If you're, you're thinking, oh man, but what if like it's in the room, <laughs> that ship has sailed? I would say... First, how's your kid sleep? If your kid is sleeping fine, if you are not worried about this, if it's going to start World War III to try to get it out of their room, like you certainly have, you know, my blessing to use your good judgment as a parent. But if you're like, yeah, no, my kid's sleep is garbage. And I think they're on their phone. And, you know, like, and we also know that having a phone in a room where you're supposed to be sleeping undermines the quality of your sleep because you're, even while sleeping, resisting and interacting with the phone. Then I think it's, it's a conversation worth having. So that's one guideline. The other guideline has to do with age of access. So in my book, social media should be social. It should be the thing that helps you stay connected to your peers. And that's how a lot of kids use it. And they use it well in that way. And there does come a time where kids need some degree of technological interaction in order to maintain their connections. Um, and depends on the community, but... Um, Often by sixth grade at the later end, I think in some places, 
a lot's going down by text and plans are made by text. And if you do not have access to texting, you're going to get left out, not because these are bad kids, but because they're not going to call your house phone if they're doing it by text. So I feel like the tension I want parents to navigate, and this is a hard one, is you don't want your kid to be socially isolated. That is also bad for kids. But you don't want them to have more social technologies than they need. So what's the minimum social technology a kid needs to stay connected to their peers? Texting goes a long way for a long time. I have a kid. She's 13. I'm like, you are on texting until you cannot maintain your friendships any other way. She has an iPhone. It does not have a browser. It does not have any apps. She cannot download them without my permission. The thing does not go in her room. I have said to her, my goal is to get you to 14 or 15 before you need anything more than texting. And I think the day will come when she says, it's all going down on Snap. I have no idea what's mm. happening. Now, 14 or 15, you know this, is developmentally a world away from 11 and 12. There is a neurological watershed at 14 where kids gain a very heightened capacity for skepticism, right? Mm. This is a total pain in the butt at home, right? <laughs> because <laughs> yes. you're like, you got to wear a coat. And they're like, why? <laughs> you're like, come on, come on, <laughs> right? Um, but it's a better way to do TikTok if you're mm. not taking it in whole, if you're not, you know, looking at it thinking, oh, is that really true? We want that filtration system of adolescent, later adolescent or mid-adolescent skepticism to be well in place. So that's a very long answer, but it's a very complicated situation. Mm. Oh, so helpful. Um, thank you. Yes. So helpful. One of my favorite stories, I had a mom who, speaking of the algorithm, said, I've decided I'm finally going to let my daughter on Instagram and I'm going to set up the account for her and I'm going to watch 300 videos of puppies so that I <laughs> tweak her algorithm for her. Isn't that awesome? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. brilliant. And, I know. and that's the thing. Like, if your algorithm is puppies, if your alg right now my algorithm is how to fold a sweater, right? I don't know why I'm deep into it. Um if your algorithm is sports clips, a lot of kids at sports clips, like, yes, knock yourself out, right? We right. all need mindless stuff. We, yes. I watch so much Gilligan's Island, right? I mean, like, we all, it's like mindless <laughs> yes. stuff is not on its own bad for kids. Toxic yes. stuff is bad for kids. Right, exactly. Well, I hate for us to even be winding this conversation down because I, I just was thinking as you were talking it is, I mean, obviously we have loved and admired your work for so long and feel so, I don't know that there are many people that we have talked to professionally that have felt as like-minded and like-hearted mm -hmm. as every single thing that you have said yes. during this conversation. But also it is such a gift to sit with you and discover more of who you are as a person and your kindness and your thoughtfulness and your brilliance and your humility. I mean, I, I we were crazy about you before and we are even more now. I think I can speak for David and I both Agreed. on that. So will you just say where folks can find and follow you sure. in all the places? I know you said your podcast was Ask Lisa, but where can yeah. they find all the things? So my website is basically the best clearinghouse. So it's drlisademore.com and it has all the work I've done. It's organized into six categories. Um, family relationships, mental health, stress and coping, school and peers. So people can 
muck around through there and and find hopefully what they're looking for. Um, and then I'm on Instagram, Facebook, um, LinkedIn. Um, so you could you can find my work there too. Um, and I just try to put up quick little things on social and longer things on the podcast and of course long long things in books. But um, I just I, I hope I can meet people where they are with what they need when they need it. You do. We can confirm that. Yes. Yes. And we're hopeful we're going to push all the books into a next printing by the end of Thank this interview today. Absolutely. <laughs> Random House thanks you all. So. Hey, thrilled. Yeah. We like to yeah. end every conversation. We move from the substantive to something silly. We like to move from parenting to food. And we've got a two-part question for you. Okay. Part one is queso or guac. And wow. part two is what's your favorite kind of taco? I love that you knew that guac. Well, um, the guac for sure. Guac for sure. My favorite kind of taco. You know, you really can't beat a good fish taco, I think. Mm -hmm. yes. I really think you can. Agreed. I, I'm from Colorado. The, the Western the Western food piece uh, resonates with me. Mm. Love that. Yes. Well, in a future trip to Nashville, we hope we get an opportunity to share tacos with you at some point down the road. But I thank you that. for giving us this time. It's been yeah. a Thank gift. you both. It really, this is so lovely. I, I, it's, oh. it's really, it's, it means the world to me to get to think with you. Us too. Thank you so much. If you are enjoying the Raising Boys and Girls podcast, click follow on your podcast listening app to subscribe and not miss an episode. Join us next time for another episode where we'll bring you help and hope on your journey of raising boys and girls. 